0: This morning we met here for the purpose of worship, and uh, of course Wednesday was our Veterans Day, and it was also Armistice Day. We have two armistices in our country, one of course in World War One, which ended with an armistice, and then we have the Korean War, which ended with an armistice as opposed to a treaty. So uh, <coughs> we're going to today uh, do our recognition of Veterans Day. So uh, let me um, begin by saying that Tommy has pictorially presented on the remembrance table uh, those that we honor today, which are our veterans, the white lilies for those who are deceased, and the red roses for the living heroes, many of whom certainly suffered a great deal, but uh, survived for our freedom. So men worth their salt must be ready to fight and perhaps to die for their homes and their families. And the nobility of this concept was captured by General Douglas MacArthur uh, when he, in a speech, had said the following, and I shall read, The soldier... Above all other men, is required to practice the greatest act of religious training, sacrifice. In battle and in the face of danger and death, he discloses those divine attributes which his maker gave when he created man in his own image. No physical courage and no brute instinct can take the place of the divine help which alone can sustain. However horrible the incidents of war may be, the soldier is called upon to offer and to give his life for his country. That giving is the noblest development of mankind. The soldier above all other people prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. But always in our ears rings the ominous words of Plato, only the dead have seen the end of war. Now we in the United States have been fortunate to have fought our last several wars and police actions on the soil of other lands and thus avoided the first-hand ravages of war. The reason for our blessing comes from our client nation status, which spawned a brave cadre of fighting men who time and time again have risen to every challenge and risked everything when duty called. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, silent prayer. You think about... The, Our country, you think about our service, you think about anything else that you think the Lord needs to know from you in silence, and then I will close. Let us pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right now for announcements. We are going to have on Wednesday prayer meeting, 6.30, and our Bible study at 7 o'clock. And don't forget to keep the, the prayer list updated over to my left on the organ. Add to it or delete as the case may be. Now with reference to giving, I have put on the board again our our chart which describes what the New Testament has to say about giving. And uh of course if you want to give, you gave. It's that simple. I think that's expressed best in Second Corinthians eight twelve, for if the willingness is there, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he doesn't have. So uh that's a grace aspect of giving. When you want to give, you gave, whether God has blessed you or not. But if He has blessed you, even then, as 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, uh, every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or uh, a necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So unless you can be a cheerful giver, of course, you give if you can. Be a cheerful giver. Uh, But keep it. Don't give it if you can. not So those are the two summary scriptures about giving, but you can find in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 uh, what the New Testament has to say about New Testament giving. Alright, uh, we're going to briefly recognize, and so hold your applause until the very end, our veterans... And, uh, we'll start with the, the United States Navy.
1: Uh, we
0: have, uh, two to recognize. We have the Judge, uh, who is, a Navy Captain and, and that's, uh, that's like a full bull in the Air Force or the Army. So, uh, we thank you, Judge. And Then we have Richard Gilliam, who is a member of our church, but as you know, he has cancer and stays at home. He was a uh, corpsman in the Navy and served in Vietnam. So remember Richard. So those are our two Navy fellers, if you will. Now let's go to the United States Air Force. Uh, we have yours truly up here, who spent three years on active duty and five in the reserve. And we have Don Joseph, who uh, was a KC-135 pilot in the Strategic Air Command who uh, refueled the many bombers that we kept in the air at all times with atomic weapons in order to deter the Russians. So, thank you much, Jerry, and thank you much, Don. All right, now let's go to the United States Army. Uh, Ken Harrell, of course, uh, served in Panama, and uh, Wayne Warren was in the Army Reserve, and then the judge again, of all things, served, uh, I guess, in Europe. He was guarding the nuclear uh, uh, arsenal, and I don't know if it was... Jokingly, but he said, I asked him, I said, well, what did they tell you to do if the, if the Russians came across the border? He said, run like hell. Those were his instructions, but, uh, uh, thank you, Judge, uh, for both of those. So, uh, keep praying for our fighting men because they are still needed and will always be needed because there's no short of madmen in the world, said George S. Patton. Alright, uh, now let's go to uh, another aspect of worship, which is music. As you know, we're not to be singing out. We're not to, not to talk loud. Uh, Wayne. I mentioned Wayne. Uh, he was in the Army Reserve, I said. So thank you, Wayne. We, you, you got two because. But, uh, thank you, Ken. Oh, okay. Oh, Marines. Boy, would I be in trouble. My son-in-law was uh, uh, nine years in the Marine Corps. And he uh, was a bombardier navigator on the A6 Intruder. Served in the First Gulf War. So, uh, I'll I have to I'll have to hear from. I know I will hear from him, but uh, all right, thank you, Tommy, so much. Thank you. All right, now let's move on to uh, our special music. Ken It should be number one and, uh, which uh, is appropriate for Veterans Day. All right, now for our message, uh, we're going to, as you can tell from your lesson plan, talk a little bit about the Matthew 13 parables, and uh, I'm going to briefly go over the charts, and we'll end up getting to the parables at the top of the page on page 8, excuse me, page 5 at point 8. And we'll talk about the parables themselves. But because we're going to a gospel account, I thought it was appropriate to have several charts showing uh, the various dispensations. We have on our lesson plan the regular dispensation chart where we show the kingdom age. And that's when Christ is on the earth. And that's when he teaches the 13 parables in Matthew chapter 13. And then uh, you have the relationship of the other ages all set forth on the regular dispensation chart. There is another reason, by the way, why I have provided that today, because hopefully I'm going to get through the Matthew 13 parables today. And then we're going to start a lesson entitled The Dispensations. And because it is so lengthy, uh, we're going to do it in three parts, part A, part B, part C. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Then we have another chart there that shows what the Jews expected. In other words, uh, Israel expected, of course, in their age that Christ would come back and that uh, after He goes to the cross, then He would implement His kingdom. And the reason I put the cross in there in the the, the uh, dissertation on that uh, expectation was because Isaiah very clearly in chapter fifty three mentions the cross. So the Old Testament folks had the message that he was going to have to suffer and go to the cross. so after that he would he would set up his kingdom. All right, so we then have another chart over on page three, which talks of the church age, the Jewish age, and the millennium with a summary statement. For example, the church age acts through epistles to Revelation chapter 4. And then we have the Jewish age continued. Uh, That age that God owes the Jews, the seven years of the tribulation. Then, of course, we have the uh, age of Christ or the millennium, as it's also called. Uh, And then, uh, uh, of course, you have it mentioned that there will be... a eternity future but uh, we have on page four a chart that shows what would have happened at the bottom where it says age one and then it shows Israel and Christ and the kingdom which is very similar to the one on page one that shows what Israel expected but then at the top we have what actually happened because there was a rejection on the part of Israel we have age one, we have Israel, we have Christ, we have the rejection, and then the kingdom is postponed until the second advent of Christ, and uh, Christ sits on His throne right now in heaven, but He will sit on His throne in the millennium on earth. Uh, but uh, we had to have a church age, we had to have a tribulation, and we had to have the millennium because of Israel's rejection, and that chart can be seen really twice over on page four. So now we're ready to move again to page five at the top of the page is point eight. And here we go. The chapter thirteen parables unveil the events in the development of the kingdom program from the time of its rejection until it is received by Israel at his second advent. So he does this in parable form. In fact, the Lord loved parables, and his disciples didn't. Uh, they in, indeed came to him and said, Lord, why do you teach in parables that we can't understand? And his answer was, it's for some to know and others not to know. Uh, and then uh, after that, the Scripture says, he never taught them again any other way than by parables. Uh, I find that amusing. Oh, don't complain to the Lord, you know. But uh it was uh, interesting that uh, he chose to do that. But in this particular case, in the book of Matthew, he not only gives the parable, but he also provides the explanation. And that's why I love the Matthew 13 parables, uh, among other reasons. But... uh Let's uh, go on, because the parables describe the form of the kingdom while the king is absent. They deal with the time when the king is in heaven awaiting events future. That is King Jesus. So let's take a look at the Matthew 13 parables and how they provide one of the few glimpses into the future to inter inter-advent dispensations. And those two are, as I know you're well aware, the church age and the tribulation. So a look at our intercalation chart, that's just a highfalutin way of saying an insertion between, again, two Jewish ages, the kingdom age and the tribulation, and you have the church age. And uh, you can see the intercalation chart And. In, uh that shows how it's inserted in between, again, two Jewish ages. Because the Kingdom Age, of course, was a a Jewish age, and certainly the Tribulation was a time of Jacob's trouble, as the Scripture clearly says. It's not for the Gentile, though there will be Gentiles there, as you you know. But nonetheless, uh, it's primarily for Israel to whoop up on them, actually, as the Lord says. And prepare them so that they can go into the millennium with them. And uh, they will become the active catalysts in the tribulation. Whereas today the Gentiles are the active catalysts in our church age. As it should be. So we have that chart there. And now for the subject. The Matthew 13 parables. Alright, let's look at Matthew 13, 1 and 2 says, the same day went Jesus out of the house and sat beside the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So he had an overflow crowd, and he solved it by getting out in a boat and pushing out to to, a very short distance into the sea, and spoke to them. And that's how they were receiving the parable, physically speaking. They're on the shore, and Jesus is in the boat, speaking to them. Now let's look at the first parable, the parable of the sower. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13, verses 3, reading through verse 9. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprang up, because they had no Deepness of earth, however, and when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them, but other fell onto ground, and brought forth some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear." All right, we have a situation on our hands. As we're going to see, the story is explained. First of all, you got to remember the first particular individual, unfortunately, the seed fell on the, I'm going to say the asphalt, because we've got asphalt out here. and You can imagine a bird coming down and picking up the seed and carrying it away. The bird is the devil. And... uh Unfortunately, you had no soil to germinate. So there was no positive volition. So these folks were not saved. So there's our unbeliever. Alright, now let's go on and see if we can find a believer here. Alright, the explanation. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one. In other words, there was no positive volition, so they couldn't understand it. They were negative. And uh, the wicked one catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. And there's our unbeliever. Now let's go on now in verse 20. We'll see what we can find here. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word and anon, which means later or at another time, with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he no root in himself, but dureth, dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word by and by, he is offended. Alright, so we have another individual, and this is a believer. And a little bit of soil, a little bit of positive volition. So he received it and uh became a believer. Now let's go to verse 22. And also he that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the word and he became unfruitful. Neither of these two individuals produced. Uh, one, of course... uh Well, both in actuality had problems with what happened in their life. But he that received the seed, we're going to look at a positive believer now, but he that received seed unto the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. So interestingly enough, well, there's going to be a variation in production for positive believers we've got three believers three positive believers and uh, the last one is very positive though the others choked down and you see it happen from time to time they just couldn't uh, they just couldn't get the job done all right there are four types of individuals listed in this first parable there's the unbeliever of Matthew 134. The bird is the devil and the seed is the gospel of salvation because it falls by the wayside. The bird is able to snatch it away. The second individual described in Matthew thirteen five and 6 is a believer who receives the word and there is enough soil, positive volition, for the salvation doctrine to take hold. But because of subsequent tribulation and persecution, his spiritual growth ceases and he, though a believer, soon becomes a casualty in the angelic conflict. The third individual of Matthew thirteen seven likewise is a believer, but the seed falls among thorns, but nonetheless he receives it only to find the deceitfulness of riches ch- ch- excuse me, <coughs> chokes the word and he becomes unfruitful. All right, though a believer, he is just another casualty in the angelic conflict. Now lastly, our hero who receives the Word and continues in it until he produces what God would have him to produce. Most important, what God would have for him to produce. Some will produce a little and some a lot. I always think about when he says some a lot, I think of Billy Graham. He certainly produced a lot. And I think he was represented very representative of this our hero, if you will. But then there are varying uh, and we don't know really, no way we can tell, uh who is going to celebrate the most in heaven uh, at the Bama because of production. And and secondly, it's none of our business. Uh, but uh, there will be varying production. And this parable clearly teaches that as we have seen. Now let's go to the parable of the tares. Alright, first the parable. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed in his field. But while men slept his enemy, that would be the devil, came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? And whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye therefore first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them but gathered the wheat unto my barn. Well, as you may have gathered, we do have in this particular case, someone who sows seed. He goes out in his field, he sows good seed, the wheat, if you will. But in addition to that, someone else, the devil, sows what is known as Darnell wheat. And we'll see more about Darnell shortly. And uh, what it is, but it's uh, actually uh, zazania in the Greek. And it means uh, a certain kind of wheat that you can't tell the difference. Two people sitting side by side. One's a believer and the other's an unbeliever. It looks just like the other one. Darnell wheat cannot be uh, distinguished between good wheat. And Another aspect of darnel wheat, zazania, is that if animals eat it or humans, it's poisonous. But there they are, side by side. So someone comes by and notices the difference and suggests to the Lord, let's get rid of the, you know, do you want me to go out there and cut that darnel wheat? I'll get that darn stuff out of that darnel wheat, you know. I'll get it for you, Lord. And he said, no, 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 no. You may damage some of the good wheat. Now let's get the explanation. All right, the Lord had interpreted the parable of the tares, or has. Matthew thirteen thirty six, reading through verse 43. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world; the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares, the zezania, are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and actually the world there is aeon, aeon, uh, which is a word for age, the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Once more, A-I-O-N, age. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all the things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And certainly, I think if you go to Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14, you can get a good description of what's going to happen uh, just before the Lord returns when the armies of the world will show up. And they're there specifically to do two things. One is to annihilate Israel. And the second thing is to wait for the Lord Jesus to some come back so they can kill Him. And of course, He does return, as you know. And He does deliver Israel. And they go out the back gate where there's a giant earthquake on Mount Olivet. And they get away. And uh, Israel goes out and picks up all the booty, if you will. All the good stuff because... Christ speaks his word and the uh, enemy, the represented here, of course, by the armies of the world, they will all turn into bones. They will look very scary because he will destroy all of the armies of the world. And uh, there will be their gold and their silver and their guns, etc. And Israel will run out and get the bounty, if you will, the booty. But the king of the north, the king of the west, the king of the south, the kings from the east, and the, all of these will show up. And you can read, of course, you can also go to the book of Zechariah, which I studied in a great amount of detail. But then it's an interesting story about that book because I told Tommy I'd like to teach an Old Testament book. This was after I completed my conference course with the head of the uh, department out there at UT and Dr. Adlaham. and he said, you know the Hebrew better than any of my graduate students. And uh, I was tickled to death about that, but then I thought, well, I. Then he said, I want you to translate a book of the Bible for me. And I did, the book of Zechariah, and that was a big job. But I had the book of the Zechariah uh, translated, uh, notebook after notebook after notebook after notebook after... Morgan knows about all those notebooks I've got in my bookshelf at home. But uh, there they were. And uh, then, uh, so I told Tommy, I said, I'd like to get an idea. So I, and, and then, of course, I got Colonel Theme's tapes, and I listened to those tapes. And then I told Tommy, I'd like to get another idea. So I want you to call Dallas Theological Seminary in their library and find out what book do they use when they teach the book of Zechariah. And, of course, she was startled to find out, we don't teach the book of Zechariah. You don't teach the book of Zechariah? No, no. Now, this is after, you know, this is not Lewis Perry Schaefer and his gang, you know. They taught the Bible. But Teacher 101 is taught at this particular point in time. I don't know, it's probably right now. But the point is, uh they said, we have this one book that teaches the Old Testament, and that's what we teach our, our pastors, you know, and I thought, wow. So I said, Tommy, go to the. I forget where I sent her, but I said she knows all this stuff. So she starts looking for somebody. She knows who I like and who I don't like, who I trust and who I don't trust. And she said, Merrill Under has a book on Zechariah. I said, get it. So I got Merrill Under's book. And so with all that information, I taught you all the book of Zechariah, and that's and it's still on the internet. By the way, you're welcome to go to it. If, if you've got the time. But, uh, I found that to be an interesting story of how I learned to teach the book of Zechariah. But in chapter 12, 13, and 14, you have a record of the Lord returning and what He does and how He destroys, of course, the armies of the world and gets Israel out that back gate. Alright, now let's go on. So the true sowing, the true sowing emphasized in the parable will be imitated by a false sowing side by side there is to be a side by side development of that which is good with that which is evil because of the two sowings there will be a judgment at the end of the age to separate the good from the evil the wheat will be received into the millennial kingdom and the tares excluded the devil comes and sows the tares, or the darnel wheat. The tares in the Greek is a particular kind of worthless wheat, which grows up in the field and looks like good wheat. The difference is, it is poisonous to man and herbivorous animals, causing nausea, vomiting, and even death in some. As a seed it looks the same, as a plant it looks the same. And we've studied that about false teachers, huh? Oh, have we ever, when we were in 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the Bible is full of teaching. You can't tell them apart. You can't tell them apart. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can teach you which is false and which is true. Some will abound, and if they're very successful, it's difficult for some believers to think that success has something to do with the uh, the validity, the authenticity of the teacher. Not necessarily so, brethren. Remember, you can't tell them apart. The tares and the darnel, the darnel wheat versus the good wheat. Alright, let's go on. The wheat represents the believer and the tares the unbeliever. Many feel this parable is to be related specifically to the tribulation, excluding the church, of course. Yet it is true that the entire church age will be characterized by a false sowing in competition with the truth. And for documentation of that, go to our doctrine of false communicators. And we've just covered that, by the way, when we, again, were teaching Second Timothy. So there are certainly several clear messages in this parable. First, do not try to get rid of the tares. After all, you can't tell the difference. And by all means, don't try to clean up the devil's world. For as J. Vernon McGee has written, God didn't call him to clean up the pond, but to fish out of it. Secondly, God will do the harvesting. And thirdly, you and I have been planted. All right, we should think on that and be the very best plant possible. Bloom where you are, for it was God Himself who planted you and gave you a special place in his garden. All right. Now the parable of the mustard seed. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, 32. Another parable put he forth unto them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in this, in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Alright, the parable explained. I think we can just simply say here the tree represents, you know, uh, organized believers, churches. Big tree grows up. And the bigger it gets, the more the room for the blackbirds to come. A blackbird here signifying, of course, uh, the uh, unbelievers who get into the tree, the bigger it gets, the more prosper it gets. Then you begin to attract a lot of blackbirds. Alright, now let's go on. In other words, unbelievers are believers who are reversionists. All right, now let's look at the explanation. The church of the church age and the tribulation is characterized by an abnormal external growth. In the verse, the birds are used negatively as it would seem logical that such should also be the interpretation here. Both Dwight Pentecost and H.A. Ironside agree that the mustard seed, though small, would grow until it becomes powerful in the world. The tree grows, uh, it starts out small, but it does grow. So the tree would seem to refer to a perversion of the church, which started small, both the universal church, church, made up of course of local churches, from one small seed of faith. The tree grows so powerful that the birds representing false teachers and false members Find a place in it. The birds then represent all manner of false teachers who find places in the branches of the growing church. So like in the case of the tares, believers and unbelievers worship and work side by side in the large tree. Now let's go to the parable of the leaven. Matthew 13. It's amazing as you look at all of these parables how similar is the message to us in this the age of the church. Matthew thirteen, thirty three, another parable spoke he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. The parable of the leaven explained Now we have seen over and over again what leaven means in the scripture, and all oh, in the feast of the leavened bread. It always means unbelievers. It always means sin and evil. Leaven is described time and time again, both in the festivals given to Israel and also uh, that we find in our, for example, our parable right here. The yeast represents sin and evil which will mix during the inter-advent period. And of course, those we've seen already in chart form. Uh, The inter-advent. The church, of course, church age and the tribulation. This we have s- certainly seen in the church age, also a consistent symbolic meaning of leaven throughout Scripture. Once in the loaf, the yeast is humanly indiscernible. That was the common uh, adjective I think we could see so far. You, you don't know. Well, you might say, "Well, how in the world can I know?" Well, you take in the Word of God and grow in His grace, and the Holy Spirit will show you. But uh, you have to be positive to the Word; otherwise, you'll be a casualty yourself in the angelic conflict. So, it would seem any number any number of interpretations would fit, so long as the symbol of the leaven represents false doctrine, sin, and evil mixed indistinguishably into the church loaf. All right, now let's go to the parable of the hidden treasure. Matthew thirteen forty four. again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. All right, the parable of the hidden treasure explained. Now this is one of the most obvious of the parables. The field, according to Matthew thirteen thirty eight, is of the world, which was purchased by the Lord Jesus at the priceless cost of His own blood that He might have the treasure. As Israel was God's treasure in Old Testament times, so there is at the present time a remnant of Israel according to the election of grace. Those who compose the remnant are no longer reckoned as Jews but as members of the one body together with saved Gentiles and thus Christ's inheritance and his joy. And that, of course, includes both Jews and Gentiles as we saw in our study of Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And this was his message in the entire book of Galatians uh, for I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me in the life I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness come by the law then Christ is dead in vain and then that's, that's two verses of the second chapter and then he goes on to speak to the fact that we're all one together In Christ. Alright now let's go to. Of course we have covered several of our parables. We've got another here. The parable of the pearl of great price. Alright let's go to Matthew 13.45 and 46. Again the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man. Seeking goodly pearls. Who when he had found one pearl of great price. Went and sold all that he had and bought it. The parable of the pearl of great price explained. You've got to remember what a pearl is and how it becomes valuable and how it can become unvaluable very quickly. Uh, but we'll get to that as we go along. All right, this parable would seem to relate to the universal church of the church age, given the fact that many parables, pearls, excuse me, are sought in the sea of ocean or ocean. The sea always indicating the world in in Scripture. The sea is symbolic of the nations. Pearls are a product of accretion. That is to say, growth or increase in size is a product of gradual external addition, fusion, or inclusion. So it would seem to be with the church. Christ having given Himself for the pearl is now preparing it for presentation. It goes without saying, however, that Christ's purchase included both Jew and Gentile, church-age saints being one in Christ, as we saw in Galatians three twenty eight and elsewhere. And this pearl is being prepared again for presentation at the second advent of Christ. All right, a pearl is subjected if, excuse me, if subjected to darkness and the absence of air, will turn to sand and become worthless, just as sin, evil, and an absence of doctrine in the life of a believer proves to be a deleterious regression in a believer's spiritual life. Pearls, therefore, must be displayed or lose value, and thus a believer must... Let his light so shine before men, for we were brought, excuse me, bought with price, bought with such a great price. Now let's go to the parable of the dragnet, Matthew 13:47 through50 for the parable. Again, the heaven, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea, and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth, and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be a wailing and gnashing of teeth. All right, let's see how the Lord explained this. First of all, the parable presents another view from that of the wheat and tares, that of the mystery of the kingdom as the sphere of profession, with this difference. This difference. There Satan was the active agent. Here the admixture is more the result of the tendency of a movement to gather to itself that which is not really of it. The kingdom of heaven is like a net which, cast into the sea of humanity, gathers every kind, good and bad. These remain together in the net and not merely in the sea until the end of the age. It is not even a converted net, no. Much less a converted sea Much violence has been done to sound exegesis by the notion that the world is to be converted in this age. Against that notion stands our Lord's own interpretation of the parables of the sower, the wheat, the tares, and the net. I recall a story from a seasoned fisher lady who would not swim in the ocean. She warned, I have seen too many really weird creatures pulled out of the sea. Indeed, there are some weird creatures that will one day be removed from the net and cast into the lake of fire. Alright, so much for our parables. Next week we're going to start part one of the doctrine of... dispensations, my daughter told me, she said, when you get that podcast, you be sure and teach the doctor dispensation first. And I said, I'll take that under advisement. But the point being, I haven't gotten around to it yet because I wanted to uh, uh, doctor it up a little bit. And uh, so we'll be starting with the part one or part A or whatever you want to call it, but the first of three. And it may take longer than, you know, I can do it in three lessons, but, uh, we will do it and, uh, you will learn more about dispensations. But the reason the daughter said that, I don't know if I added that or not, but I should, you can't understand the Bible without dispensations. And I say, yes, I know. It's, it's impossible, uh, to understand that. Uh, although God the Holy Spirit is well able to do whatever He wants to do. And He can indeed make known to you whether you know about dispensations or not. But we won't try the Lord. We're going to go ahead and get the dispensations taught. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, this message has certainly had an evangelical aspect to it. Uh, Though uh, I want to make it extremely clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So we all start at the same place. Sinners who need to be saved by grace. And uh, many are desperate. Many are not so desperate. But all need to know that all have sinned, and that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. I think about my brother's favorite verse: the story of the the uh, Lord, the uh, Paul and Silas when they were in prison in the second missionary journey, and. Uh, the angel came by and opened the doors and the jailer knew that he was going to receive the punishment that Paul and Silas were going to get because that was Roman law. And uh, so he was desperate. Desperate. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And the Scripture says, they said. Well, I wonder whether they all spoke at once or not, but nonetheless, uh, the message... The response was there. Simple. Not a lot of religious jargon, but simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on His name. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yes, All you got to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, Well, how do I do that? Do I walk the aisle? Do I tell God I'm not going to sin anymore? Do I tell God anything? No, you don't need to tell him anything. He knows everything. But what he wants you to do is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, a simple statement of faith. And right where you are, whatever you're doing, you can do it right now without jumping through any psychological hoops, walking an aisle, or again, begging God, just believe on the Lord Jesus and Thou shalt be saved. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study Your Word. Now, I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented Make it real in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.